a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is your guy, C. Grimy, and we are back. The People's Podcast, coming to you live from the Boogie Down Chat Town, 423 Tennessee Stand Up. And thank you to all our listeners around the Southeast, around the country, around the world. Continue to subscribe, continue to hit me up. I love the DMs, I love the letters, the emails, man. Hit me up, C. Grimy, 423 on all platforms. Man, <clears throat> took a little break working on some illustrious projects thank y'all for the patience thank y'all again hit me up let me know um, who y'all want to see what kind of interviews want to see and, and as usual i got the movers and shakers doing their thing in tennessee around the country and around the world <clears throat> and i am here with 2022 Tennessee governor candidate, Constance Every. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you, you so much for having me on the show, bro. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you've been campaigning all across the state. Yep. Um, just the other day you was in Asheville? Yes, I was just yeah. in Asheville. So I know it campaign time and it's crunch time. It's getting, it's uh, early voting is going on right now? Yeah, we got 48 hours left. Uh, November the 3rd is the last day for early vote. Uh, then it'll shut down for good. Uh, we'll come back for the official uh, midterm election, November the 8th, 2022. The polling stations are open bright and early, 7 a.m. Yeah. Uh, depending on where you're at, what area, uh, time zones, we do have two time zones in our state, mm. Eastern and Central. Uh, and so depending on where you at, your polls may be closing at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. depending on what time zone you're in. But we need as many Tennessee voters to get out and vote. Wow. I did not know that. So the, is the central time closes at 7 p.m.? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Because they have to get all the votes in. At the same time. Across the board, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, there are certain stipulations and other factors that can be exercised for a late vote or for a late district turn-in or a late polling station turn-in, but, of course, these are uh, extenuating circumstances and situations that we've had that happen. 
Hopefully we won't have that happen in this election because as we know, uh, this is the first election since the great yell of the uh, voter fraud situation. So mm. this is one of the first major state and federal elections. As you know, some Congress and some Senate folks are on the ballot this time around, too. And so this is our first true uh, big state and federal election since the so-called uh, ac accusations of voter fraud occurring uh, by our last President uh, Donald Trump. Oh, oh, well, 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 look, look, look. Before we, before we, before we get all the way into it, man. Just uh, for those who don't know who you are, give the people a rundown of you know your background, your connection with Tennessee, and, yeah. and, and just a little bit about who you are. Yeah, yeah. By all means, I definitely want to focus this conversation on Tennessee because we are days mm -hmm. away from the election. Uh, but of course, yes, when we talk about some of the statewide issues, they're going to tie to the national and of course the local municipality of our governments too. So yeah, you're right. Before we get too deep in, yes, my name is Constance Sebri. I'm running for governor of Tennessee. A little background about myself. I am a disabled combat veteran. I served in the Afghanistan war, uh, 15 years in the United States military army was my branch. Um, I have founded two nonprofits, a social justice, 501c4, Black Coffee Justice, and a social service, 501c3, Seeds um, for Needs. Uh, I've been an advocate, a black activist, and a human rights advocacy fighter uh, for the last 10 years, roughly, of my life now. About 2015, when I got released, uh, I came straight out to homelessness. So I'm one of those thrown away children, especially one of those thrown away veteran children mm. uh, of our country that had to deal with the harsh realities of serving your country and coming home, unfortunately, to disparate circumstances and situations. Uh, but I bounce back like no other, as we know, as being black people, the resiliency of our ancestors that run through our blood, uh, our dire situations don't defeat us. If anything, it's like we're birthed from the ashes and the fire of those situations and it creates us. Uh, and so with that being said, uh, reason why I'm running, if there is a, such as a reason, I am just one of those people that are sick and tired of being sick and tired. I am sick of having representation that doesn't truly represent me. I am sick of having wealthy, uh, rich guys normally coming to my communities telling me how they're going to represent me mm. and fail to do such things. Mm. Uh, I am tired of going to city council, county commissions, uh, state uh, state legislator uh, meetings, public meetings, uh, public platforms where we can have public forum to speak our piece as the taxpayers and constituents of the state or the country and feel like my voice is falling on tone deaf ears and not seeing the changes I need to see. I am tired of being a black woman in America that has been disregarded, uh, uh, dismissed, uh, the least protected, the least represented of all time uh, at this point in our country. And that's why I'm running for governor of Tennessee. Mm, I felt that in my Bones in my soul. Little hairs on the back of my neck stood up, man. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you answered a couple questions within your introduction. <laughs> uh, but uh, going back to why you decided to run, mm -hmm. you know, expand on that a little bit. You know, being, being a black woman in Tennessee and being tired of the way you've been treated and seeing your, your fellow community members treated. Uh, expand on that a little bit. Well, I think our ancestor Malcolm X has done well at describing the treatment of the black woman in America as he has made it very clear we are the uh, least protected, the least heard, and the least represented uh, across the board. Uh, and, and in reality, you don't have to look far for proof of this, uh, whether it's in the state of Tennessee or in America, because we have all these disparity studies that exist, right? Mm -hmm. And these disparity studies do what? They go out and try to find where these gaps 
uh, of equ equality and equity are happening in our in our various communities and demographic of study. Uh, and so when I look at things like, for example, when I say I feel like I'm not represented or, or not been heard as a, uh, as a black woman and why I'm running, I look at things like the, the maternal mortality rate uh, in the state of Tennessee. And I look at the first off, the mater maternal mortality rate is the 41st out of 50 uh, states as the worst in our country. Uh, so we know that women are dying on the table here in the state of Tennessee. And this is outside of race. This is literally just as a, as a gender identity at this point. Women are dying in the state of Tennessee giving birth here. Mm. Uh, but the other big factor that sticks out to me also is that black mothers in the state of Tennessee are the eighth highest state with black women mortality rate uh, in, in, in all 50 states of our country. So it's not only are women dying in Tennessee, but black women are definitely been dying on the table in the state of Tennessee. Uh, and so these are issues that kind of catches my attention immediately that says I'm concerned and I want to know why this is happening. Uh, as well as the fact when we look at business, you know, last year the state of Tennessee only did 3% of its state contractual agreements with black businesses. Mm. Uh, and that's, co again, collective. That's not based off of gender or, uh, or, or, or sexual or anything like that. This is strictly black business owners, whether they were male or female, said I got a business, I want to do business in Tennessee. And this is how much percentage of the business contracts went to black business owners. 3%, so you got 100%. 97% of that went somewhere else, and 3% only went to our demographic of people. But again, if you look at that number and take the 3% out, you'll find that less than half of that 3% went to black business women contractors. Mm. And so again, what is happening? Why are we having this <clears throat> obvious disparity happening in our state of Tennessee, especially towards black women? Um, and then, of course, you know, other multiple factors, you know, we look at our education and how that is affecting us. We look at how our health care accessibility is affecting us, public transportation, workforce, job development. I mean, you start running down the board, you start to see these very obvious, very common uh, distinctions of disparity that are happening. And, and again, unfortunately, in a lot of those categories, when you go into the demographic side and start looking at it, you will find uh, that black women are suffering the greatest disparity in the categories across the board. Uh, and so, again, this is why I feel like as a black woman, my voice has not been heard. It's not only by personal experience, some of the encounters I've had with trying to navigate assistance and healthcare and other things, even as a veteran, I've had those struggles as a black woman. But even uh, from the personal experience, you have the data to back up those personal experiences and say, no, we're not doing something right in the state of Tennessee. Uh, and especially when it comes to our black people and especially when it comes to our black women, we are missing the mark time and time again. Mm. Mm. Um, you spoke about being a veteran, uh, going, uh, serving the country, going in that career for how many years? Uh, I did 15 years. Wow. Mm -hmm. Coming and then uh, when you got out of the service, coming home to homelessness. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we have, and, and this was w w around what time frame was that? 2015. And we've seen an influx of that even since 2015. Right. It seems like it's been a theme. Uh, Throughout history, really, right, right. And, and 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 we continue to see an influx. Uh, what what is what is up with that? I mean, it shows it continues to shows the failures of our of our government and particularly our <clears throat> government oversight. I think is a big thing when you look at the veteran demographic. What is happening there? Because you know. Uh, and, and I speak from my experience, and I know with fellow veterans, this is definitely experience for all of us. Number one, when you are getting out the military, there is the Veterans Affairs, which is definitely designed as this 
afterlife of the military thing, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is that between you coming out of the military service and, and coming back to civilian life and then connecting with the VA to kind of assist with that changeover from military to civilian life and the assistance that they offer, there's a whole breakdown there. It's not happening. It's mm-hmm. not like, see, Grammy, you are now in the larger United States Army. Hi, Constance Every, this is your counselor. Let me introduce you. I'm from the VA. That's not how it goes. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, see, Grammy, you're at the Army. Uh, here's all the documentation and numbers and people you got to contact, but good luck on finding your way through the VA. And it's kind of like that's what happens. You mm. kind of dropped out there in it. Uh, and so and so you have to start to navigate the system. Unfortunately, it's not an easy thing to do because there's a runaround. And it's like, to me, this is a common uh, dysfunctionality of government. And I've seen it on the civilian and the military side because, you know, you have the VA and it's dysfunctional. How I got to call this person, that person, get routed to this person, that person, talk to this person. You know, just the whole runaround game. But you see it all the time, too, in the civilian world. You know, when we're trying to get a, a single mother that has three or four children uh, to get her on the uh, SNAP program for food stamps, it's the same concept. She's got to call this person, talk to that person, go see this case, work, do this case. It's the same thing. So it's like, okay, the reason why the VA doesn't work is the same reason why the SNAP program doesn't work. Mm. It's because the government is dysfunctional in its operation. Uh, and more importantly, also what I think is the problem is that we are putting the wrong people in these jobs, in these roles. Mm. Uh, I think it's critical that we should start looking at job force marketing and a better concept of that. When we say you have experience, not to the 10 we talk about experience, we always talk about a degree or certification. Mm-hmm. But we're not talking about experience in the sense of like, have you ever actually applied for food stamps yourself? Have you mm. been through that process? Mm. Have you been a veteran? Have you been through the VA and had to get your medications and other treatments and services through the, through, the, through the VA? And to me, it's like if we're not meeting that gap of experience when we say we're hiring folks, then we're going to continue to have this problem because you're going to continue to have people who don't know how to relate to the job nor to the person or the client that they're dealing with. They'll continue to think it as their own own personal prejudice and biases will be infiltrated into it because again at the end of the day we're all exposed to the machine known as the media mm. and, and so you know you come in and you may hear a homeless veteran that has mental health say I need issues with my housing and stuff like that but you may think that oh he's just a drug addict and he's just taking these opioids that we're prescribing the irony of and just abusing them and so instead of trying to give him the help he needs you judge him and you try to blow him off or you try to bypass him or even worse you try to find most Multiple reasons why he doesn't qualify when it's very obvious he does qualify. Mm. Mm. Wow. Well, I think right there would be a good time to take a break, run these commercials, holler at the people, and come right back with Tennessee governor candidate Constance every year. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Thank you so much for listening to the People's Podcast with your guy, C. Grimy. We now have ad space available, so if you have a small business, special event, nonprofit organization, or community group that you would like to promote on the show, hit me up at cgrimey423 at gmail.com. That's C-G-R-I-M-E-Y 423 at gmail.com. Give me the information. We'll make it happen. Get you on the show. We'd love to have you. Thanks for listening to the People's Podcast. We're back. Cheer, cheer, cheer. It's your guy, C. Grimey, and we are back, the People's Podcast. And I am here sitting with Constance Every, Tennessee governor candidate. She's been all across the state campaigning for many months, many moons, uh, been in the community doing work, especially in the Nashville area, for many, many moons. That's how I got introduced to her in the first place, uh, linking up, organizing, man, a, a real one, boots on the ground. It's a pleasure to have you here. 
Uh, getting back to uh, why you're running for governor and some of the disparities that we're seeing across Tennessee, what are some of the things that, you know, we in chat, you know what I mean? And I think we're the third or fourth biggest city. Mm-hmm. I think y'all are the second or third. Well, They're- I'm in Knoxville. So the order of it is, I believe, by size, it's either Nashville or Memphis is the biggest. So they're like mm-hmm. one or two. Mm-hmm. And not so in Chattanooga coming at three or four. It's, mm-hmm. That's it. It's one, yeah. two, and three or four. It's yeah. Boom. So boom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, I got, I got family in Nashville, Memphis. I love those cities. Mm-hmm. Um, big black populations mm-hmm. in those cities. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that across the state are, are correlating and connecting, like the same disparities you're seeing from city to city, county to county? Poverty. Mm. One of the common threads, whether, and this is one that doesn't have any race or anything to it. It is literally either you got it or you don't. What is very prevalent across the state of Tennessee is the haves and the haves nots. They're very obvious and they stick out. Uh, Like I said, you know, there are definitely counties where there is zero black presence or very, very few to minute presence. And so uh, what you are finding in those areas, how I reach those areas, right? Because I can't go in and really talk about black issues in these areas, right? Like you can't go go to Claiborne County talking about black issues. There's not even black people really up there. Mm. Uh, But you can go to Claiborne County and talk about poverty and economical issues because that's something that's very extremely relatable. You can go to Claiborne County and these other uh, predominant white counties and talk talk about uh, governmental corruption and how their justice system is not working for them because they are poor versus the guy who got the money can walk in and shake hands with a friend, cut a little check to the judge, and he's out the back door. So that's one of the, way, the ways that we have seen the diversity of us being able to relate to the multiple demographics of the state of Tennessee is that the one thing I see to unite the state of Tennessee from the east all the way to the west, down the middle, back and forth, is poverty. Mm. We are all in the state of Tennessee dealing with some form of poverty. And again, data already speaks to this again Tennessee is the sixth best state for business and the ninth worst state for quality of life. What does that tell you? We are definitely putting profit over people here. Uh, More importantly, only 6% of the state of Tennessee makes $200,000 a year or more annually off of their payroll income. While compared to 94% of the state of Tennessee faces some type of economical hardship or cost burden crisis. So therefore, what does this say? We are poor in this state Mm. and we're poor in this state because the leaderships across the board whether they're the state, the federal, or your local municipalities, they have all collectively agreed on one thing and one thing only, and that is that they will serve the interests of capitalists and corporate and not the interests of the need of human and human resource and service particularly. Uh, and I think our ancestor Martin Luther King has made a great statement about the dangers of putting capitalism over the people's needs. Uh, and so, therefore, you're seeing this very prevalently and very clearly in the state of Tennessee because look at our minimum wage. Look at our housing crisis and our homeless rate. Like, we have had one of the fastest growing homeless rates mm. compared to, like, cities like L.A. Like, the way they say Tennessee homeless rate is growing right now, we're right on track that we could outtrend L.A. in, like, the next 20 or 30 years if we continue the way we're growing our homelessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you're not seeing a lack of is gentrification, eradication of new stadiums like baseball and football stadiums have kind of been a priority now in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're also not seeing the lack of these 300,000, 400, half a million dollar homes popping up all overnight or being regentrified and created on a new market mm. of that price. And you're also not seeing, again, the erasing of black and poor communities behind these type of initiatives and these agendas. Uh, again, I think it's disturbing, as I highlighted also, you know, when we talk about the state of Tennessee's contract and how we're doing business in our state, I think another big piece to talk about is how 
the majority of t Tennessee contracts are to out-of-towners. 65% of Tennessee's state contracts were to out-of-town companies. So on top of all that, you're not even doing business at home. Like, you're not feeding your people here. You're allowing people to come in from outside of our state to set up shop in our state and eat off of us. It's actually the opposite. And when you do that, what are you doing? You're driving out Tennessee native population because if you price us out, we can't afford to stay here no more. We move out, but then folks like New York, California, some of the areas that have been flocking to our state lately are moving in because they're literally pricing the salad. they like, well, you can afford it, but I can't. So buy C. Grimey, hello, Constance. That's mm -hmm. what we're dealing with in our state. Uh, and so to me, that's one of the common denominators around the state is that poverty and the issues that poverty brings to itself are all co correlated around our state. No matter where you go, you are seeing this constant presence of poverty and the impact it is making on people's lives. How is poverty connected to the Tennessee education system? Oh, in multiple ways. I mean, right now, one of the, the tactics that they're trying to pull now, which is the privatization of our public education, uh, this is, to me, a direct hit on poverty because it's flat out saying that if you don't live in a wealthy enough school district or if you don't make enough money, then you basically are going to go with less resources for your kids' schools while we pump up these other schools, these charter schools, kind of what they're trying to bring it in as. Mm -hmm. But we're going to pump up these charter schools that will have pretty much the polyphoral resource for their children. But at the same time, the, the key factor of who gets to have it and who doesn't have it is literally just that. Who parents can afford it versus who parents cannot. Uh, and so you've already seen this disparity already created because if you look at like urban school districts or inner city youth districts, you'll normally find uh, that these are the highest populations where we are seeing those disparities around our math and our reading students particularly uh, versus when you go into more wealthier, more affluent school districts in zip codes, you'll find that their children are least likely to deal with these issues. But also tied to that is the accessibility and more important, the youth enrichment that's invested into those communities. Uh, the other way that we also see how education is tied to poverty, especially when you look at the black community, look at our HBCUs. Mm -hmm. We have a hundred and something plus schools in the state of Tennessee, but out of those hundred and something plus schools, the seven HBCU schools are some of the worst performing schools in the state, but one of the biggest ways that you see a disparity popping up there is the amount of funding that Tennessee invests into the HBCU programs compared to the PWIs around the state. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing, again, multiple ways how poverty has infiltrated itself into education, but as we know, poverty is tied to many things. And that's why under the Tennessee for Everyone platform, we're building a platform that's more about thriving. Our investment is more into human resource, human service, and less in the corporation into capitalism. Uh, because here's the kicker, Ford don't need my help to be a greater billionaire. They already got that on lock. Um, but, you know, the local mom and shop, pop shop does need my help to make sure they can keep the lights running in their building. It's not even about them getting rich. It's about just being able to provide the needs that they need for their business to be a productive business so they can keep their doors open. And so to me, that's what I want to focus more on. I want to focus on more how I can keep C. Grammy's corner store open than I am ever worried about helping Target keep mm -hmm. its lights on at night on our behalf as the infrastructure is providing those utilities on our taxpayers' dime in our cities and states. So what... what what would you say to a charter school president, co-founder that says, well, hey, we're bringing brand new quality schools to the hood and we have special programs for youth who otherwise wouldn't get this kind of quality education and all we're doing is it's a first come first serve lottery type style. Because uh, my daughter actually went to a charter school. It was an all-girl all charter school. And uh, 
it was about 85% black and Latino. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say uh, to that? They say, they say, hey, I hear what you're saying, but we're doing great things at our charter school. My question is, okay, but you're doing great things for a small population of mm-hmm. children at your charter school. Mm-hmm. My program is about trying to include 100% of every child that's in that district or in that school an opportunity of success. And that's why, uh, this is why we harp heavily on in the Tennessee for Everyone platform that every school be fully funded in the state of Tennessee, whether it's charter, whether it's private, or it's public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every school in the state of Tennessee will have uh, apprenticeships, trade schools, and STEM programming in it as well. Because again, we are sacrificing our children for this initiative. Mm-hmm. And that's why I want the charter school presidents and all those folks who support that. You are literally telling children that because this daddy makes this amount of money at his job versus this daddy who's a corporate owner at his job, he's these are the reasons why you two are literally being offered two totally different forms of education now. And to me, that's a problem because when these children get grown, there is no such there is, but there isn't such a separation, right? Like it can or cannot exist. But the thing is that at uh, some point, some of these children are going to be inspired. Some of these people are going to run as governors. Some mm-hmm. of these people are going to be podcasters. Mm-hmm. Some of these people are going to take very significant roles that we need to be credible, but most importantly, transparent and truthful in. And if you're already teaching your children, it's okay to basically live a lie by saying because you made this amount of money, which makes you better, versus this person who didn't make that amount of money makes them less, then you're already building a narrative of our destruction for our future. Mm-hmm. Do you really want a kid to stand at a leadership role that was raised or, or even educated in such systematic uh, design that basically teaches him now as the governor or the president or the congress or the senator or the mayor, these roles that really have authoritarianism and power to it, that now you can treat the poor community or the homeless community any kind of way? Because when you started school, we designed and even taught you that way. Mm. This is the danger that we're crossing into. And so it's like we can't yell equity, equity, equality, equality, and then turn around and do everything the total opposite of it. I mean, same thing for someone who says that they're Christian. You can't say I'm Christian, 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 but then you are committing murder every night. You got to pick a side. Either you're going to be a Christian or you're going to be a murderer, but you cannot literally be both at mm. the exact same time. And that's what we're dealing with when we talk about this education situation. Mm. Damn, that was powerful. That was powerful. Uh, I, and, I, and I agree on so many ways. Um, I've seen how... They use the charter schools to usher in gentrification mm-hmm. and really erase uh, black education in, in black communities. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible. Um, and speaking to the HBCUs, how do we support that? What, what, what is the solution to get the HBCUs back on track, which were hubs of higher learning for black people in a safer cultural black environment? Facts. Yeah, Facts. Yeah, yeah. What do we, we do? We created for our people. Literally. Exactly. That's what they were created for. Exactly. Um, to me, the way we get HBCUs back on track is one, obviously, as governor of Tennessee, it is my duty to, to lead that charge on how we need to get this right. And the first one is giving them the funding that they need. Uh, one of the things that we just did when we did take our trip to Nashville. Uh, we visited TSU, Tennessee State University. I'm sure a lot of folks who hear this podcast know where you at. If you're on your HBCU tip, you know about TSU. It's one of the historical, uh, very prominent uh, HBCUs that we have still on the list, still standing today. Uh, but it was uh, heartbreaking to hear the students' perspective 
of, of the dis, of the issues, the disgruntledness, I want to describe mm-hmm. it. They were very disgruntled there. Uh, one of the big ones, obviously, is the housing. The housing. Kicker. We've been seeing this housing problem all around our HBCUs. Howard was made probably the most famous, unfortunately, for the housing issue when their students literally went on a flat-out strike, strike about it yeah. because they were like, it's just not okay that it wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. And I agree. But, I mean, let's talk about PWIs. They're dealing with the same thing. TSU, I'm sorry, Tennessee, UTK, University of Tennessee, who's the Tennessee Vols with this big football program going down right now. Here's the kicker. They got homeless students. They had to buy a, a, a hotel uh, down there from Holiday Inn for this year just to house the students who they literally had no housing for. Homeless. So, yes, L- living they're homeless. On the street, going to class. Literally, yes. Wow. And so we're seeing this as a problem, period. And so one, again, it goes back to the folks who are over enrollment. You know these numbers up front. You know how many people you accepted. You know how many kids you done paid. You know all this data. You know how much housing part. you got on campus. Exactly. So to me, you know how much housing costs in the area. Poor starting here, mm-hmm. right? You started poor planning from the get go because you didn't make enough housing for all these children that you knew was coming to this school. So that's the first big. We got to get better on our planning here. Like, who's the strategic plan here? Well, where is the strategic plan? They sure do got a jumbotron at the motherfucking Twenty stadium. years, y'all passed the three to five year mark. So if you still play like that, so you're already behind. Y'all need to start playing 20 years in advance going forward because things are starting to change in our dynamics of our conversation and areas that may not be getting highlighted before are being more highlighted. You know, Coach Prime is doing an amazing thing for HBCU, and you better believe it's going to get bigger. So if you're at TSU, there's no excuse to be planning talking about five years. No, we need to be playing for 20 years from now. Are we, we're going to say from 20 years from now, we're going to have 100,000 students roll through this area in, in, in 20 years. How do we plan for that kind of mm-hmm. intake? And That's what everybody got to start getting to. And how do we usher these black children in. Exactly. And, and so to me, that's the first step. We got to address what the current students are telling us the problem. And we know one of the big ones, especially for black folks, we need dollars. Little more, little more grip, little less lip. That's what we need in our black community. <laughs> so that's the big one. We have to give more money flat out because they are literally lacking the dollars. Uh, the second biggest thing I think when you look at HBCUs, we need to find a way to retain black teachers, but we need to find a way to recruit black teachers. Mm. Before I can recruit the children, see, Robin, I got to make sure somebody's there to teach the children. Mm. And so to me, that's the other big problem that we're seeing is that HBCUs are, are struggling with retention right now. Uh, and it's because of a lot, again, when you're not getting those type of dollars, it is hard to appeal to someone with a college degree to stay and teach somewhere for half the cost when another school that has way more money, triple the amount of dollars, uh, that can pay the pay rate, plus got the benefits of when you become tenure and all this other stuff. And unfortunately, some HBCUs just can't offer because, again, we don't have the money. So it still comes back to square one. I got to increase that funding so we can address some of the issues that are on campus life that are making quality of life not acceptable for students and not appealing to the campus. But at the same time, I got to also increase the funding so we can make payroll appealing for our teachers so that they want to stay and they want to come to our schools and teach there because they know not only are they impacting the next generation of our people, particularly in our identity in America, but they're also making sure that they're able to provide for their own families and for their own livelihood and for their own homes. Uh, and so it's not fair uh, to say to folks, you should work this job because of the, uh, the uh, what is it, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the investment of the community. Mm-hmm. You should work this job because it's the investment of the community is the, it's the payroll plus 
See, the the, the, the the investment in the community should be the collateral damage of good that comes with it. Mm. Plus the investment of the community that you're making, you teach people that look like you. Uh, and so that's why, again, Tennessee for Everyone is adamant about having a $23 hour pay raise, minimum starting rate for our state. Uh, I know for small businesses, that is a scary number to hear out loud because of the issues around your own taxes. But that's why we're prepared to cut payroll taxes for our small businesses. And again, flip that tax off to our major corporations, Target, McDonald's, uh, uh, Exxon. These corporations can pay those taxes. Small businesses are the ones who should be getting the cuts, not absorbing that cost like they have been. While big corporations like Ford and them can't afford such payroll and have not been paying because they've been getting those cuts. We need to flip the model how we're giving pay cuts to our corporations and business versus our small business owners and how they're not thriving under such tax uh, uh, standards and pressure. So those are to me some of the two or three quick things when I think about HBCUs, how we can keep them operational and functional. We need to pay our people that work there and we need to improve quality of lifestyle issues for our, our students and we need to give our schools the money so they can address both issues at the same time. What's that saying go? Killing two birds with one mm -hmm. stone? Yeah, that's what we need to do. If we increase funding, we can literally knock off two issues for HBCUs HBCUs overnight in the state of Tennessee, particularly. Mm. All right, all right, all right. I think we should take a break right there, and then we'll come to our last segment with Miss Constance Every, Tennessee Governor candidate. Get out there and motherfucking vote. November eighth is election day. Make sure you are prepared and have a plan to get to the polls if you haven't early voted. November 8th, get to the polls. Wherever you at, Tennessee, Georgia, Kentucky, Cali, all my listeners, man, that mess with me, make sure you go vote. Your, your vote is your power, man. Yeah, it is. Chill. We'll be right back. What's up, everybody? Thank you so much for listening to the People's Podcast with your guy, C. Grimy. We now have ad space available, so if you have a small business, special event, nonprofit organization, or community group that you would like to promote on the show, hit me up at cgrimey423 at gmail.com. That's C-G-R-I-M-E-Y-423 at gmail.com. Give me the information. We'll make it happen. Get you on the show. We'd love to have you. Thanks for listening to the People's Podcast. We're back. Cheer, cheer, cheer. It's your guy, C. Grimy, and we are back. The People's Podcast, you already know if you're dialed in, and if you ain't, if you're first time hearing this, man, lock in. I'm telling you, man, you're missing a lot. What is up? I am here with Miss Constance Every, Tennessee governor candidate, putting in work, going all across the state campaigning and I'm, I'm loving I'm loving the campaign I'm loving the energy that you and your team have been putting in um, I wanted to get into I wanted to get into the gun violence that we've been seeing across the state I know Knoxville's been dealing with it crazy. Yeah. Chat Town's been dealing with it crazy. Nashville, yeah. Memphis has been dealing with it crazy, yeah, we crazy. Yeah, got four deadly cities on the top 50 list in, in America right now. Right here in, yeah. in one state. Yeah. Um, what, what's some solutions to, to, to get a, what's, what's some solutions to get a cap on this, this gun violence that's going down? Well, I mean, you know, Sheesh, gun violence in itself has so many complexities to itself. Um, 
you know, shout out to the Migos family. Uh, as I'm sure many folks have heard in the hip hop arena that uh, RP Takeoff had his life unfortunately taken last night in Houston. Uh, and you know, gun violence to me, especially for, again, I'm gonna have to always talk from where I know. My experience is black, so I'm gonna always speak from black experience. And mm -hmm. I'm gonna speak also how I understand how those experiences pour out again into poverty, because I know what it's like to be poor. So I'm always gonna speak from my experiences. And so to me, gun violence in black America is a problem, period. We have a major issue with gun violence. Uh, as you see, Chicago. Chicago had 15 people shot up in a drive-by on Halloween night. And for what? For what? That, that's why I get to it at this point. I'm really at a for what status now. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, and to, you know, not blame any particular group or anyone, period. But I'm, I'm going to have to talk about the music a little bit here. Ooh. Because the music is one of the most, it's always been a powerful influence. We have seen how music has been able to promote the movement. We have seen how uh, music has been able to promote the American sexuality boom when people, women started feeling, learning that it's okay to feel sexy. Uh, we know for a fact music is an influential tool around the world. It is something that you can just play the people beat. And it's like everybody can tap into that immediately. Uh, and so to me, the issue that we've seen, especially in the genre of, of hip hop particularly, we have went away from where we had messages of like fight the power and UNITY and you gotta fuck let the them police. know, right, fuck the police, you know, all of that. Self-destruction. All of that. We used to have many deep messages, Tali Kweli, most dev, these Black Star, KRS-One. And I mean, even then, even with our gangster rap, I mean, when you look at people like Benny Siegel, Freeway, them, them cats, they weren't NWA. speaking on uh, uh, Kill Your Brothers. They were speaking on like what they knew from the hood, like Nas, you know, God, Nas became probably one of the most poetic voices we ever heard spit about the hood. You Ghetto know Boys. All of that. And so it's like, you know, we used to have music that was teaching, telling our story out loud for the public. Like when people be like, what is it like to be black? These were the songs, these were the groups, these were the albums that people listened to to really get an insight to our black world. But as people, as many people are on Kanye's net, one of the things I didn't see that has that has kind of been some attention, but I would like to see more attention on in his Drink Tamp interview when he talked about how hip hop today is a deadly message for our people. Mm. What he said the music does now, fuck your bitch, kill yeah. that nigga. Fuck you, bitch. Kill that nigga. Well, it's true. That is what music is doing today. It is literally telling our people, and I would say children, but it's not. Because the men and women are participating just as much as the children are. We are having a music that teaches us our destruction. Here's the kicker. Didn't Dr. Francis Wesley tell us that? That if you have a music that will teach your children to disrespect their cells and destroy their cells, then you don't have to do any work anymore as an oppressor because the music will do it for you. It's a programmer. It will literally do it for you. And so that's what we're dealing with now. And so now that we come back to gun violence in the state of Tennessee, it is still some of the same issues. Mm -hmm. If you go look at the gun violence in these communities, uh, and here's the kicker, the white boys are starting to commit crimes too now. See, that's what people ain't talking about either. Mm. How the music is not only just influencing black children, it's influencing them white children too. Mm. Uh, but if you look at gun violence in the communities where it's dominated, so our four primary areas where we're on the list actually for because we're doing it so much, you will find, again, common denominators. The first one is poverty. All of these areas, what they got in common, where the gun violence is participating at the most, is poverty is very prevalent in every last one of those areas. So here, light bulb message, this is the message part, poverty does what? Poverty drives crime, exactly. If you address poverty, what can you do to crime? Oh, you can reduce it, you can almost cut it in half. And there's data to support that theory. Yeah. So we know that. So first one is, poverty is very prevalent in the community. The second one is, 
You normally have, nine out of 10, single mother homes or single parent home. I'm gonna say single parent because I've seen there's, there's an increase lately that's not been talked about again, how single father homes are single, starting to become very prevalent now. Single dad. Single dad homes are starting to become more prevalent than we've ever seen probably in a while. Uh, <laughs> it is on the same influx as our women single parent. I was a single dad for a long time. Exactly. So it's out there. It's real conversation. Mm -hmm. And the third big one is elderly homes because unfortunately we have too many homes where both parents for whatever various reason is no longer present in the home or in the child's life. So we got elderly folks trying to raise children. Now imagine a seven-year-old trying to raise a five-year-old. That's asking a lot from an elderly person to be honest about it. And so you have these denominators. And, and so when you have a single parent home, what we also find is that the single parent home is not to attend absent parenting home. Because you know why? They're working three or four jobs to keep the utilities, the food, the child's necessities of clothes and everything else provided for them. So what are we dealing with? Who's left to raise the child? Oh, the kid is left to raise itself and that cell phone and that computer and that video game, Fortnite. You know, it's crazy how these kids kill because they've been playing those video games. Mm. See, video game teaches you that I can kill you on a game, but you'll come back to life. In real life, unfortunately, that does not happen, young mm. brother or young sister. Mm. And so that's the key part to me that's missing. Where is the village? Where is the elders? Where are the, the parents and the aunties and TTs that got the kids that hang out with their kids that you got to kind of be a parent and aunties and all the kids to keep all your kid away from the things that their kids are doing? Where is our village presence? Mm. And that's what has happened. Because you know why? I'll be real. My generation killed the, the, the uh, village and your generation did too. We're in mm -hmm. the same age group. Mm -hmm. We're the generation that came out and told people, you can't say nothing to my kid. Uh, don't you be chastising my kid. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, you got something to say to my kid, you need to say to me, and now you want to fight me because I stopped your son from committing a crime from, from crazy. in the store is what I did. Mm -hmm. You mad me for stopping him from committing a crime and from him going to jail. That's why he's in your car and you are cussing me out versus him, you talking to him in a jail cell. So we have multiple issues going on again internally in our community. And so to me, the biggest one that comes to the room is accountability. Mm. We got to be accountable for what we are having going on in our community. Because one of the things I also have found in a black community particularly, we've been protecting this nonsense. You know why? Because it's my uncle, it's my cousin, it's my brother, it's my nephew, it's my homie from basketball, it's my pastor's daughter from church. No, that's not an excuse to do harm. Because I can't express, express enough to people how if you pray on your people, P-R-E-Y, I changed the E for A, changed the A for E. When you pray on your community, you're no longer a part of that community. You are a threat to that community. Mm. And so we have to accept that. That when folks start committing this black genocide, robbing, killing, stealing, raping, harming people that look like you, then you're no longer part of this community. You are now outsider and a threat to this community. And you must be removed immediately from our community. Uh, and so to me, that's one of the biggest factors. And then getting to the government side, yes, we have to hold the government accountable. I tell you all the time, I was like, look at how government works. When we were using guns as self-defense under the direction of the Black Panther Party and Huey P. Newton, guns were being passed, gun laws were being passed left and right to do what? Get them guns out of our hands. We had to have governments back then. We had to have this permit. We had to take this test. You had to do that. You had so many regulations around guns when we were using guns as defense against the oppressors mm. and white supremacy and racists coming in our neighborhoods. Fast forward 60 years, now we use guns to kill each other. And look what they did. Make oh, gun easy. laws don't even exist no more. Oh, now all you got to do is go to the gun show. If you're 18, you can buy a whole assault rifle out of that thing. You see, you see how they did it? And so it's like 
we have to get back to good gun common sense laws. As a disabled combat veteran, as a black woman, I am pro Second Amendment across the board. I absolutely am. But I'm also good gun common sense at the same time. And we all know that there are unfortunately certain individuals with mental illness that do not have any business with a gun in their hand. I'm just being real. They shouldn't have it. And it's not because um, a person doesn't have a right to defend themselves. But if you're a schizophrenic and you see six people in a room and they're cartoon, looney tune and Daffy Duck over talking to you and you find off your gun, we have a problem now because you're a threat to yourself and to others. So we need to be realistic about our gun laws. Uh, and again, data speaks to this because here's some of the factors. Uh, gun violence is the second highest cause of death amongst our 18-year-olds and underage group in the state of Tennessee. Damn, uh, say that, hold on, hold on, say that one more time. Gun violence is the second leading cause of death in our 18-year-olds and under population in the state of Tennessee. Damn. So our children are literally killing themselves. Uh, Tennessee is the 14th highest state in gun violence, period, across the board in the country. Uh, Tennessee was the 8th highest state for gun homicide ladies' death. We were the 20, uh, we were the 28th, uh, we had a 20% increase in gun violence death in our state since the legalization. So this is since we dropped the gun permit. So uh, the first data when we were the eighth highest out of gun homicides, that was whether we had permits or not. So we have a gun period problem going on. But since we have uh, dropped the gun permit and made it where anybody, so we're a permitless state now, since we've done the Permitless State Act, we are now a 20% increase in our gun violence death since we did that. Damn. We've had a 15% increase in gun suicide death uh, and we've had a 59% increase in gun homicide death. Mm. So I'm going to run that again. We've had a 20% increase in gun death period across and this the board. And this is since they've lowered the restrictions on... Right. This is when we went permitless. By, yeah, permitless. Since we said we were permitless in 2020, these are the data numbers since then. We are 28% increase in gun death. We are 15% increase in gun suicide death. And we are 59% increase in gun homicide death. Mm, but here's mm, my favorite part. Because if you are a taxpayer, this is why you should care about this. Because Tennessee is the eighth highest in taxpayer expenses on covering gun violence, death, or related crimes or incidents. So that means we are paying for this. Not only do we have a problem with it, but our state spends mad money on this issue. Mm. Because, you know, you got wrongful death lawsuits, right? You got, uh, you know, the police didn't get their time to stop the crime, and we put a whole uh, 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 restraining order in against this person. Y'all let this person come around. You know, we're paying for this. That's what they're not telling y'all, is that there's a lot of things behind these gun violence in situations that families or individuals have taken the initiative to try to address and alert our authorities on, and they just drag their feet to it, and it led to these people losing their life. So what happens? Their families come back and say, oh, y'all owe us some money because we told you what's going on and you failed to do your job as the law enforcement, as the as the detective, as the as the uh, uh, FBI, TBI agent who's supposed to be investigating the matter. And so that's what they're not telling you. So that's why we're spending the eighth highest in taxpayer dollars on gun-related incidents in our state is because there's so much going on behind the scenes that when these lawsuits roll out, we got to cut a check in the state because we failed to do our job. And that's the eighth highest out of all 50 states. Uh, eighth highest out of all 50 states. Wow. That's out of 50. Wow. Well, Tennessee is actually uh, in the highest end. It's normally some of the worst categories. And the things that we should be the highest in, we're actually the worst in, in overall category. Mm. We're at the bottom. We're the, 40, we're the 41st total overall ranking. We're the 41st ranked state overall in America. So what is the solution? What do we, what do, we do? 
So the solution is just like what we've done with our abortion laws. Like have like people said when they first drove Roe versus Wade and all those abortion laws dropped and folks was calling that out like, man, the same way y'all could have done these abortion laws, which y'all could have done for gun gun uh, gun laws, it's literally the same thing. Uh, and again, under Tennessee for Everyone, the first thing is that we are going to bring full background checks back into the picture. Anybody with a mental health diagnosis, things of that nature, we need to take a little closer look at you uh, on why, one, you want a gun, and two, again, are you mentally competent and capable of having a gun? Uh, and as well as the fact, of course, our violent offenders. And now I know with violent offenders, there's a lot of reasons why folks can be labeled violent offenders. But I am concerned uh, when we got folks like uh, with this human trafficking running around and the, uh, the young lady, the Memphis driver got snatched out there. You know, did he go through a background check for his gun, for his weapons? See, these are people we could have caught because if you have a history of rape or assault, Again, we need to take a closer look at why you want a gun, and more importantly, again, what is your application or reason to? Uh, and I'm not saying that because you committed a crime, you don't deserve to have a gun. Again, you have the right to self-defense too, but again, we got to look at patterns. Jeffrey Dahmer was created because the police ignored the pattern about him. If we would have caught the pattern, we probably could have stopped Jeffrey Dahmer from 17 victims a long time ago. Well, what do you say to a person that has a violent offense from back in the day and is a rehabilitated citizen and they like, oh, I need to get strapped up now because it's crazy out here. Well, that's why our platform is all about restoring uh, incarcerated members' rights as soon as they're done fulfilling their duties for whatever their crimes were committed. Uh, to me, that is part of the process. So I guess that's the better way to put it. How do we actually filter out these violent offenders to uh, folks like you, to others who are not? Well, that would be one of the first steps. Has this person's rights been fully restored? Because if your rights have been fully restored, then that's already saying that you're a competent, fully rehabilitated member. And yes, give you a gun. Meanwhile, if I got Mike over here who still owe me 15 years on paper, I'm sorry, Mike, you're not getting a gun until after your 15 years on paper because that's how we're going to guarantee your rehabilitation. Because when you get done with your 15 years and you ain't got no more issues, I'm going to give you a gun rights back at the end of the road anyways. And so that would be, I guess, my barrier. How could I really divide that? It would already be my policy I've already created. I'm going to give... Uh, our previously incarcerated members who are ex-cons, ex-felons, etc., but you're done. You don't need your paper, you don't pay your court costs, or you don't figure out how to get that managed with the court cost situation. Uh, you have not been in trouble or anything that will violate you while you're on your parole, your probationary period, and so therefore you're fully re re rehabilitated. Here's your rights back. So for you, yeah, you won't have to worry about that because you already have been restored. These are for more of the non-restored folks and us having to look at why these folks who have not been restored their rights want a gun. And, and what's going on? Is it is it demoral reason? You know, like I said, and what's demoral reason? I guess to me, demoral reason is that if I got a guy, for example, that has a violent crime background that's maybe not per se your boat, where he's still on paper, uh, I would have to look at the factors around this guy's life. If this guy is working a job, um, he's got a family, he's got children, he's been a provider to his community, he's paying his taxes, things of that nature with no crimes or issues. Here's the other kicker. He's been on paper for 15 years, he's only got two years left, and he's asking for a gun to protect his home and his family because mm. he lives in a high crime area, mm. then I may have to say, yes, this is someone who meets the standards that we can say we can go ahead and give him a gun permit because that's the kicker. See, he, see, while we're permitless, we would have to give those folks permits, basically, because I have to have a way to basically revoke you if something goes wrong, right? Uh, and so, therefore, he can go ahead and get a gun permit 
uh, for his needs, for his family protection, because as far as I can tell, the, the flags on him, the red flag on him is low. He's a low flag to me. Like, I don't see this guy taking his gun to go commit a crime uh, tomorrow with. Vice versa, someone who I have who's fresh out of jail, uh, let's say he's only, let's say he got accused of, of a second degree murder crime or something like that because he's trying to be a gang member or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I'm looking at off real. What was the crime? If you got caught with a RICO charge connected to gun violence or gang member affiliation uh, and you've only been out of jail for a year, you still owe me 10, paper, 10 years on paper? I'm sorry, young man, you will not be getting a gun because it's, been, it's too soon to say you truly have changed your ways and you're not just trying to find a legal way to get a gun so you can commit more crime like you just did to get out in the first place or more importantly are you using a gun for your protection so i think those are three scenarios between you uh someone that has a violent crime like you but is at the end of his trail and then someone less like you that's at the beginning's trail with a fresh out of jail violent crime and ask for a gun these are the factors that we have to look at to say whether you get a gun or not get a gun based off of your violent crime history and background do you think it's plausible to get full background checks back in effect yes what it requires is that when you're the governor of Tennessee, see, this is why I get to put pressure on TBI. See, one of the things I would do immediately is that I would change my director of TBI. David Roush is an unfit director of TBI. I would bring in the sister from Memphis uh, who solved young Dolph uh, Dell, mm. who was on First 48. I can't think of her name. She, to me, fits what a model uh, director of Tennessee Bureau of Investigation looks like because mm. she is thorough. Uh, she's concise, she's truthful, she's transparent, and more importantly, she's going to get the job done. But, but my favorite part about her, she's going to get the job done right. Mm. Uh, and so that's what we need. We need someone who can come in and shape up our TBI uh, department here in our state as well, who will bring incredible people, accountable people, but more importantly, the oversight of these people. We don't have to question or actually have to look at our shoulder and say, is that guy, that girl really back there doing her job like she's supposed to? Mm, mm, mm. Mm, so mm. to me, if we shape up TBI, then yes, we can get our background check processing uh, a lot quicker, a lot more efficiently, and we could do full background checks without extreme delays or, or overhaul because we will have the proper leadership in place to ensure those things are happening. Mm, mm, mm. Um, another big issue is the environment. Right, right. Uh, experts say that the climate is fucked up. It is. Um, what is what is your stance on the environment for Tennessee and how we move forward as a state? Tennessee is going green under my, my direction. Uh, and then some of the ideals behind how we go green in Tennessee is it starts with some of these corporation contracts. Uh, I don't know how many people have looked at it, but Tennessee has signed several new contracts in the last year or so that we're going to bring in some corporations. I know Florida's kind of been the big one that everybody knows about around the state because of the Mason City situation and how the hostile takeover our state legislator of that local municipality's mm -hmm. uh, government with this big boy company coming in. Uh, but there was Smith & Wesson that was also cleared to come in. There was Springfield that was also cleared to come in. So mm. there were two gun manufacturers coming in. Uh, and now uh, there's been another major textile manufacturing company coming in too. Uh, but to me... This is how we start moving ourselves towards green because, under, again, under my administration, Tennessee, for any corporation that's a Ford, a Smith & Wesson, a Springfield, those type of corporations that want to come and set up shop in our state, you have to pay a, a state toll or state tax to us, which will help us support our green initiatives of our state. Uh, and, and one of the ways I thought about that was like, for example, with Ford. 
Four, in my opinion, can definitely hold the responsibility of helping us get our charge stations fully up and operational across our state so that we can get on the level of what California has been committed to do, which is that in the next uh, roughly about seven more years, they're going to go completely gasless in their state. Uh, but you cannot do that, again, without the adequate infrastructure. So I'm a definitely a person of that before we jump to loop 10, we need to jump to loop 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, up to that point. Uh, and so to me, that's one of the ways that we can have these corporations put in where they fit in is that if Ford, I want you to definitely be the manufacturer of our state for our energy efficient cars. It only makes sense because we can get a discount, we get a cheaper rate for our constituents in our state for it. But before we do that, for we need you to help us build the electrical uh, infrastructure and, and the charges and the charge databases so that we can actually have a gas estate off of your manufacturing capability. Uh, same thing with Smith and Wesson. Uh, you know, when you do your your byproducts and, and your and your waste uh, overture, your waste your waste uh, cleanup, that needs to be one under a zero waste compatibility, which means that you need a complete life cycle uh, uh, recycling of your base products. Uh, and as well as the fact they need to make sure that they retrofit their manufacturing line, uh, plants uh, uh, to fence line pollution uh, into the communities. And so these are spaces where we can start our green energy initiatives, uh, as well as the fact, uh, obviously, I would want these companies when they set themselves up to set up shop to start in building their infrastructure instead of building more utility electrical power line infrastructure. I want them to start building the solar based infrastructure uh, because we know that you're going to use a lot of energy and a lot of power. Uh, and let's get it from our most natural resources and not try to continue to try to use it from our coal and oil refinery resources. Let's start changing how even you set up shop when you start building infrastructure in our state. Uh, these are spaces where I feel like we can start building our, like I said, our energy grid as well as our solar grid, uh, but we still need to bring in our wind and our hydro grid. And as these companies expand and grow and need various different needs for their power and their energy sources, this is how we can introduce those various uh, infrastructures to go green for our state. Uh, and the last big thing I want to highlight about the Green Energy Initiative is that for some folks I know, because you're in the coal oil industry, your biggest fear is job loss. And here's the truth to be told. Yes. We would lose jobs over this changeover. But let me tell you the change. Let me again, let me give you the data, the facts to it. If Tennessee tomorrow shut down every oil and coal refinery tomorrow, we would lose 27 million jobs overnight. But if the next day Tennessee turned every green energy, the wind, the water, the solar, uh, and, and the hydropower systems up and running, we would take out our 27 million and exchange it back in for 50 million jobs in return. And so as we started this conversation earlier, when we talked about workforce development and black business accessibility, this is an excellent market that allows such opportunity of growth for our black business and our black workforce because these jobs don't, a lot of these jobs don't require degrees, they require certifications, mm. they require apprenticeships. And so this is why the STEM and the trade school and the apprenticeships are critical to our schools because we're now telling our kids, if you don't wanna to go to college, you can still live a great life because you can come over and work for green energy infrastructure and networks and still make good money for the rest of your life without the college degree and the debt that comes attached to it. Mm. How does how does Tennessee make change with their vote? What what is the plan of attack to get people like you and others in office that are gonna represent the real grassroots people of the state of Tennessee? It starts with the fact that we have to give people someone to vote for. I, I think that's the key thing. 
the quality of voters have sucked. And mm. I know, because I'm a voter, you're a voter mm-hmm. too. And I can admit this, I have not been satisfied, I would say at least the last 10 years of elections, and that's a lot, because I'm 37, so I'm right at the 10-year mark of the last 10 elections I've been in, uh, and I've been very dissatisfied with the candidates across the board. Mm. Uh, I get frustrated when people say, well, you got to pick between the lesser two evils. No, because I'm still picking evil. Mm. Whoever started that logic, what a insane, foolish logic you have been able to sell. Because when you told people to pick between the lesser two evils, you forgot to mention, but by the way, you're still picking evil. When the option should be no, we either pick no evil, or if I'm an evil person, I guess I'd be picking evil, right? But for those of us who are not evil, there's no real options on the table for us. Uh, and so to me, mm. we have to start making people want to vote again because we're giving them quality of candidates that represent their lifestyles, their way of life, their livelihoods, their existence in in society as real representation of their voice. Uh, So to me, it starts with the candidates. We got to give people better candidates to choose from in the first place. The second thing is that, um, it's, I mean, as we know right now, 47% of the nation is not voting and 47% of the state is not voting. And I'm, mm. probably, I'm pretty sure it's probably consistent around the country because 40, literally half of the country is voting while the other half is not. Mm. The kicker is who's voting, who's not. Who's voting? White people. Baby boomers. Baby boomers. It's baby boomers. Old people. That's why it's not changing because they have trapped us into their era right now. Look at your Congress and Senate representatives. What era are they from? Old as hell. They're all baby boomers just about. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So this is how you get trapped in a scenario like what we're dealing with in America. Because there's no change because literally there is no change. And so young people, we got to run and we got to vote. And that's why I've been telling young people on this campaign. Young people, you have to outvote the baby boomers. That's who's voting. All the young people, they said that if only, they said that literally if 20% of the young people would vote, like that's your 40 and under generation, if they would vote, they would decide literally every election with just a 20% presence right now. So if we can get 20% just to step out and vote, we could stop these baby boomers controlling the narrative of everything. You want legalization of cannabis? Then you got to start voting young people. You want, uh, you want dual care in the hospitals? You got to start voting young people. You want light rail so that the rural and the city community are connected as one, you gotta start voting young people because if we wait on the baby boomers who grew up in the old COVID when uh, men had all the say so and women didn't even couldn't get a bank account without their husband's signatures, mm-hmm. then we're never going to advance because you're allowing one generation to control the money and the power, and that's how you stay in the loser seat. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, how we galvanize the vote. More quality candidates like myself and others, meaning we need 40 and under running candidates now. Uh, two, get away from the party loyalty. That is a dead narrative. Good grief. To people talk about gang members, well, Republicans and Democrats are gang members because you're literally voting for blue or red. Last time I checked, that was a gang initiation last time I checked. <laughs> so we need to stop voting like we're in gangs and we need to start voting like we're human beings and vote for who represent you. A party does not always represent you. A candidate does not always represent you. A race does not always represent you. A sex does not always represent you. A class does not always represent you. You have to try to find, there's there's crazy. It's like it's nine candidates for governor and only two candidates are literally known maybe anywhere you go. And that's cheating the voters right now because people are going to go to the ballot all made up like, oh man, I got to vote for this guy, for that guy. You're going to get to the ballot, you're going to say, damn, I had a whole selection here. I'll be mad as a voter right now. I'll be like, why did I not know about these other candidates? Because I I probably could have made a better selection at this point versus now I feel like I'm just about to choose anything because I didn't know anything about everybody on my ballot. That is cheating the voters. And so that's why we have to stop being loyal to the parties. 
you all as the voters have to force the parties to be more transparent and say, yeah, I know you two are running, but who's running against y'all now? That's what I want to see. Who's the other people that y'all need to talk about now? And that's on media too, because media helped this happen. They didn't, they wasn't just the parties. They couldn't have done it unless the media done it for them or with them. And so voters have to start demanding more from their media and from their from their two parties to say, look, we want transparency, we want truthness, we want honesty, we want to see the base of everybody on our ticket, we want to have interviews and conversations with everybody that's running, so we can make the best decision as people who are about to be under these different administrations of authoritism. Let's be honest, this is what it is. It's a form of authoritism uh, that we can make sure that under this authority we're protected versus under this authority we're dying. Which one do you really want? Uh, and so to me, voters have to be more accountable as well on what their needs are and demand that from their ballot going forward. Uh, and then the last one is we talk about young people getting up there. We talk about quality of candidates. We talk about the voters having to show up and also demand their needs be met. Uh, but the last one to me is also, um, you know, I, I guess it comes back to everything I already said. But the last biggest point to me when we talk about galvanizing the vote is that uh, we as a community, especially as black people, we need to do better when we find out about our candidates. You know how many black people are running, how many black women running for governor right now? How many black women? Yeah. How many? Five. Wow. And it's shameful that we don't know all five. You can name me, and I'm, I'm sure you can name me Stacey Abrams. Mm. Name me one more. That's it. You can't. Can. And that's what's wrong. Black people should have galvanized around our candidates, period, that was running. Whether they were running on a party ticket or not. We should have galvanized around that. Same thing. Do you know about Jerry Chambers down in Louisiana? Mm -hmm. Okay, right. That's now, he's a kicker. There's five more senators running with him. Name me one more. Can you name me one? Hell no. I'll give you one. Val Dimmers down there in Val Dimmers. Okay, I know about Val. Name me one after her. Uh, isn't it... Is Nina Turner running now? She's not. She's already got beat out. She already got beat out in yeah. Ohio. Yeah, but that was last year's race, too. Okay, that was last year. Okay. But that's the point. We have five black women trying to make history. America's could, never had a black woman for governor. If we voted for all of the black senators running, we could have seven black senators across the country? Across the country. And we've never had that. There's, never, had, there's never been more than three senators at any given black senators at any given time in a Congress. So we have five seat. black women running for senator. Seven, two. five black women Seven senators. There's a few congressmen. Of course, you know, Herschel Walker, Warnock, and all those uh, folks. But still, but that's the point. Yeah. At the end of the day, black people should have galvanized around every single candidate we had running. Because for us, what do we got to lose? It don't matter whether I'm a governor of Tennessee or a senator out of Louisiana. It don't matter because that is our representation. Mm -hmm. If we're representing our people, then we're representing for all of us across the board. And so I'm going to put more pressure on our media tips. Shout out to Blackie. Shout out to Essence, out some of the campaign folks, some of the uh, big media that did pick my campaign. And that's why we got any recognition because Tennessee was trying to definitely make us an obsolete campaign. It was the national media that picked us and said, hey, she's one of the black women running. This is history to make it. You know what I'm saying? And so, uh, shout out, you know, people don't know this, but Tennessee for everyone is forever in history. Uh, about roughly three to four months ago, we were emailed by the Library of Congress and told our campaign would be put in their history book. So we're there forever now. It is, it is locked in because we're part of this historical period of American government and politics where black women are running for the highest seats that they have never held in American history. But I am going to pressure our black medias to do better. We should have known every black candidate running for every seat of office in this country because we are the smallest representation. We only make up 16.5% of the entire population of America. So we should have known as black people where we should have been donating our money to to make sure these candidates get a seat into office at this point going forward. Mm, mm, uh, mm. And if we didn't agree with candidates, so 
place true. like Herschel Walker, then again, it was on the black community on our media to call that out and say, no, Herschel Walker's an unfit candidate for XYZ reasons. As the black delegation who represent our voters, we're not accepting him as a candidate for our voice, nor for the representation of the Republican Party, because at the end of the day, he reflects on who? Us. Uh. And so that's why we have to get serious as a as a nation of people about our politics and what we're doing and our representation for our folks, our voice, and our people. You're damn right. Thank you so much for taking the time out and coming to the People's Podcast. Tennessee Governor candidate Constance Every, go to the ballot box, cast your vote, yes. make your voice be heard, man. Yes. Thank you. Tell the people where to find you and how to how to get in contact. Yes, yes. So real quick, I just want to share with folks because I know for some folks it's kind of like, well, what are you going to do next? Uh, I want to go ahead and make my official announcement for 2026 that if we do not win the 2022 ticket, we will be back in 2026. So hey. like, heads up. Everybody start getting yourself together knowing that we have three years to build this platform up for the state of Tennessee for governor. Uh, also, uh, as Grum, as Grum, as C. Grummy knows, I have uh, nonprofits. One of them he has worked with, Black Coffee Justice. Yeah. Uh, we have done a beautiful thing as we prepare to continue to stay uh, in our advocacy space and continue what we do. We're activists. We're never going to stop being that. We're never going to stop being advocates. Like I told you before, I'm just a, I'm just an advocate trying to be a governor, to be honest. Like, that's the truth, because I wasn't going to stop being an advocate as a governor either. Uh, and so, uh, with that being said, we have changed black. We recently have registered Black Coffee Justice as a lobbyist organization in the state of Tennessee. So we are officially a lobbyist organization now. Uh, as well as the fact we're going to be on Hill. We have met other lobbyist organizations. We linked up with a veteran group. We linked up with a woman group. Uh, so we're going to start building a lobbyist platform coming into next year, staying on the Hill, and continue to be the voice of the people in the rooms that we need to be voices for. Uh, and as well as the fact, uh, you know, uh, we are taking in registration for lobbyists right now as we speak. Uh, it's a very simple process. You got to take a short test, which is a barrier, of course, obviously oppression. But you pass, we know the test. We already passed it, so we can help you get the test passed, pay a $4 registration fee, and you can be the Black Coffee Justice lobbyist coming into next year uh, in the capital and federal. Because once you're registered in your state, mm -hmm. you can now go to D.C. and be a lobbyist up there as well, too. Uh, so that's our strategies around what we're doing going forward, uh, no matter what happens November the 8th. We will run again, and we're going to be lobbyists for the next uh, few years as we build ourselves back up for our Governor of Tennessee race. Uh, but you can find us because our platform is going to stay live, right? Uh, our platform is TNT, as in uh, Tango, N as in November, the number four. Uh, every Echo Victor Echo Romeo Yankee, the number one. Uh, dot com. That is Tennessee for everyone. Yes, I spelled it phonetically for all my military homies. As you know, I am a disabled combat vet. <laughs> uh, but that will be our platform. You can find it. Just Google it. It's attached to our social media on our Twitter, on our Instagram, on our Facebook, and on our TikTok. Uh, and like I said, that'll be our website. And we will, like I said, be doing the lobbyist work and we'll start trying to get our videos and things of information out uh, so we keep the people tuned in. But uh, yes, this is not the last of Tennessee for everyone campaign for governor. Like I said, we you're wanting to win on Tuesday, but I am a realist. Uh, and I know that unfortunately there could be some barriers to that victory, but I know that at 26 we'll be much better prepared. Mm. And, uh, and then 26, if I don't win this time, I will definitely expect a victory in 2026. Mm, mm, mm. Thanks again so much. This is your guy, C. Grimey, and this is the People's Podcast. Make sure you hit the subscribe button so you get the notification every time a new episode drops. I appreciate y'all for rocking with me. Keep hitting me Thank up. Thank you so much. Oh, my, my pleasure, my pleasure. <laughs> C-G-R-I-M-E-Y 423 on all platforms, man. Y'all already know what it is with me. Stay diligent, stay vigilant, stay dangerous. All power to the people all of the time. 
Peace. Peace. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.